If you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 2. That's going to be our text for the morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Our series, Life Redefined, Following Our Savior King, through the book of Mark. We find ourselves in the second chapter this morning. If you have ever been robbed, then you want to be restored. If you have ever had failing health, you want that restored. If your cell phone ever gets destroyed, you want that restored. If you ever lose your job, you may want that restored. Maybe. If you have a broken relationship, you want that restored. We all understand what it is to have a want, desire, need for restoration. And today's message is going to be looking at that, the restoration that Christ offers, which really does give us reason to rejoice, regardless of all of those things that I just mentioned. And so our our message title this morning is simple, Real Restoration. As we look back on Mark chapter 1, we see the intentional acts and movements of Jesus. He is a man on a mission, unveiling his identity slowly, one step at a time, here and here and here. And today, we're going to continue to see that. Not only is he the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, we're going to see that that he is that and so much more. He is the one with authority and power, and today he's going to display some more of that authority and continue to reveal his identity. And this is really good for you and for me, but it's also good for others to know as well. And so this is a message for you and me, but for others as well. The big idea this morning is is this. Active faith in Christ leads to authentic forgiveness and freedom. Active faith in Christ leads to authentic forgiveness and freedom. You could also state it simpler. Faith in Christ leads to forgiveness and freedom of Christ. Our passage today is really one of five narratives that um, show insight to his authority, and in each of these narratives, we're going to see that Jesus supersedes the Torah and the traditions of the religious rulers in which he finds himself. Now, as we read this story, you might think, man, this is an excellent story for the little kids on the flannel graph, and that is true, however... This scripture really points to something for all of us. Great life lessons, regardless of your age and stage in life. And we're going to see that today. I'm going to give you a brief overview before we get into the reading of God's word. We're going to see four things today. The desperate situation. It's a desperate situation is what we're going to see. Doubting skeptics. Divine savior and displayed solution. You don't need to write all of these down now because we're going to work through them. But we're just letting you know where we're going. Mark chapter 2, we're going to read verse 1 through 12. Listen to the reading of God's word. When he entered Capernaum, again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. 
Since they were not able to bring him into Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you for your word, which properly reveals who you are, your identity, your authority. But Lord, due to so many distractions in life, our eyes, our hearts, our minds can be darkened. And so this morning, I pray that you would reveal your light, the light of your word, through your spirit working in our midst this morning. We commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. If you have ever been to New York City and have ever gone to the subway at rush hour, you know um, what it is like to be crammed in a small, confined area with lots of people. Maybe you've gone into um, a building that has an elevator and you're, you're looking to go up to the 50th floor. And you get in on the elevator, and it says occupancy 10. And you're looking around, and you're counting, and you see like 18 heads. And you're just crammed in there. So you, you, I want you to think of the scenario, the scenery of where we're at today. Maybe you've ran to the subway, and just as you got there, the doors closed. And you couldn't get in. And everyone's in there like, sorry. Sorry about your luck on the outside looking in. Maybe you get to that elevator, and... The 18th person is pushing the close sign. And right before you get in, bye-bye. On the outside, looking in. I want you today, as we look at this story, to kind of put yourself in the room. To put, your, to put yourself in the scene of what is going on. To, to be thinking about the whole perspective of what is actually taking place here. I mean, on the, the subway, in the elevator, in this large Peter's house, what you're going to see is a, a mix of people. All sorts of people, all sorts of emotions, all sorts of smells and sights and sounds and, and all these things. Be thinking about that. Be contemplating that as we get into it. Because what's going to be interesting today, we're going to see some individuals take some drastic measures because they are intent, they are active in their faith and pursuit to have an intentional meeting, an intentional encounter with Christ, and they would not be stopped. And so with that in mind, let's look at this first section where we're looking at the desperate situation. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home, if you remember. 
they're returning to Capernaum, which is home base. This is Peter's home. By now, Jesus is no longer welcome in his hometown of Nazareth, and this is home base of operation. So we know that Jesus doesn't physically have his own home. He speaks about this later, about not having a home to, to lay his head. He's living at Peter's. So we're at Peter's house once again. We saw him at Peter's house, Simon's house, in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to show you a map, and the map is not necessarily for you to read and study, but it's just to put things in perspective. Jerusalem is down here. Samaria, Galilee, Capernaum is right up here. And they've been dra- traveling along this whole Galilee region. And so I just want to put in perspective, he is, on a man, he is a man on a mission and he is on the move. And they've been traveling all around Galilee. And so it says after several days they return. Now several days could be five days, it could be 25 days. We know that there's a lot of things going on. If you were to read the other gospel accounts, you'll see all these other places. We're not going to get into that. But he's returning home, and no doubt, because he's also fully human, he he might experience some some tiredness, some weariness, and may just want to get home, rest, and relax, kick up his feet. But the mission goes on because word gets out. Jesus is back. Jesus has returned. And so one by one, they start to come, come to the doorway. But not just the doorway. They start to enter in and enter in, enter in and enter in and enter in to the point where it's so full. And that is what we see. And what is going on? Why are they not a whole lot of miracles in this? What's it say that's going on? Well, he is preaching the good news. He is proclaiming the word of God, salvation to man. Look at verse 2. So many people gathered together that there was no room, not even in the doorway as he was speaking. Here's what we see time and time again. In fact, over 40 times between uh, chapter 1 and 10, Mark is going to mention the crowds, uh, a a large group of people. So everywhere he goes, there's just, he's bombarded with this large group of people. And and in any large group of people, uh, we can have the good, the bad, and the ugly all in one setting. And we're going to see that today. But here's what we typically see with all the crowds. The, the crowd is usually passive. They're, they're there for the peanuts and the popcorn, and they often obstruct others from coming and getting close to Jesus. They're oftentimes pushing others away. Keep those kids away. Keep them away. Keep them away. He's, he's of the celebrity elite, and, and, don't bring, and that may have been the status of some of the political and religious leaders, keep the people away from me, but that was not Jesus. Jesus said, bring those people to me. And so here's what we also describe and see with all the crowds. With all the crowds, we never see large crowds turning to Jesus or repentance or belief in Jesus. We see that really taking place more on the private or personal settings, the one-on-ones or the smaller group settings. That's where we see some of these taking place. And so, so many people grabbing at his time and attention, and they're a captive audience, right? I mean, if you think about it, not only are they captivated, hanging on to the words of Jesus. I mean, he, he's got their attention, but they're also captive because they're just stuck in there like a bunch of sardines. They can't move anywhere. No one is even able to get any more people in there. So much so, they're overflowing at the doorway. He's got this captive audience, and he's preaching and teaching and proclaiming uh, to everyone. All, all people, everyday people, the elite religious people are there even. But here's what we see. Rather than welcoming others to come, to hear, and be with Jesus, we don't see that. We see people jockeying for position. See, they don't always have the right motives or the right reasons to be at that place. And so the house of Peter is packed. 
and I think hopefully by now you're starting to imagine the setting, it's intense. But as he's preaching, he's preaching, there's going to be uh, a change in scenery, a a change, maybe a, a, a pause from his pointed message, if you will. And look at what verse 3 says. Because there's going to be four individuals that have this act of faith. They come to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Suddenly there's a break in the action. The new characters arrive on scene. They are actively committed to carrying their friend there. They have this great faith that if we can just get to Jesus, Jesus can fix our problems. But they're met with a problem. They're on the outside looking in. The room has reached maximum capacity. The, the, the fire chief will allow no more people in. And so what do they do? Do they just go home? Do they say, well, you know, we tried. Maybe we'll catch up with Jesus tomorrow. You know, we'll get the second round of preaching. They weren't going to let this obstacle stop them. In fact, they go outside and they're thinking, what can we do? How can we get to Jesus? We carried him here. We didn't carry him here just to maybe meet Jesus. We came here to meet Jesus. And this crowd won't stop us. Look at verse 4. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat which the paralytic was lying. And being a part of the crowd around Jesus, they're, they're, they're looking. We can't get in. What shall we do? So as they're exploring all their options, they see the staircase. And this time, many of you may know, they would have had staircases on the outside of the house because the outside of the house could lead to the rooftop, which is not a slanted roof, it's more of a a flat roof and would have acted as their deck. They would have had their major beams along with sticks and wood and rubble and and mud that they would eventually put down to make like a mortar, almost like a, a, a solid decking for them to go and hang out and lounge or escape from the house. And so they're like, you know what? No one's up there. Let's go up there because this doorway is not an option. We're going to create our own way. And this is just a desperate situation. The friend could literally do nothing. He couldn't fix the situation, couldn't fix the circumstances. They are in dire need, and it is a desperate situation. And so as they go to the rooftop, they're realizing here is an opportunity Here is an opportunity to get to Jesus. We're going to rip off this roof. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? As you read the stories, you hear the story. I just want to encourage us not to let obstacles obstruct us from actively pursuing Christ by faith. They were intent on meeting Jesus, and they would not be stopped. And so when you face obstacles in life, you continue to press forward by faith, saying, I'm just going to seek and follow Christ. I'm not going to let these obstacles overwhelm me. I'm not going to let them deter me. I'm going to stay focused on the task at hand. And so they literally dig through, and they're strategically removing the roof. I mean, can you, can you see this? Like, okay, they're just like taking off bits of mud and sticks and, and just throwing it to the side. And keep in mind, Jesus is still... The roof is above. Jesus is still preaching. He's still teaching. I mean, it's got to be a little bit loud. There's the, there's the dust and debris and sticks and maybe some of this, this mud and stuff that's just coming down within. But they don't care. 
And we might be thinking, this seems really disrespectful. I mean, they are destroying a perfectly good roof. Like, how dare they do this? And yet, here's what we don't see. We don't see Jesus rebuking them. Hey, you, in the name of Simon, stop destroying that roof. Rather than rebuking, here's what we see of Jesus. He's actually willing to receive them. You see, we're very good at rebuking people. Sometimes we're not so good at receiving people. And this is just the the heart of Jesus on display, willing to receive uh, this interruption in the middle of his preaching and teaching. Uh, And and this wasn't a surprise or shock to Jesus, but he just just keeps on going, keeps on going. This is just a crazy, desperate situation. And you'd think, okay, well, this is going to get interesting, and it does get interesting. In fact, look at verse 5. This is where we start to see uh, 5 through 7, the doubting skeptics. Look at Jesus in verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Interestingly enough, this is the first mention of faith in all of the Gospel of Mark. And notice that it's linked to action. It's not, it's not linked to feelings or emotion. Sometimes we can live life based on feelings or emotion rather than just actively seeking and following Christ by faith. That, that's what he calls us to. I didn't want to get up today. I, I get it. Well, what does God want you to do? He wants you to get up and continue living. Okay, well, let's seek to do that. Actively moving forward by faith. And here's what we see. Although many people saw the outer man's condition as Jesus did, Jesus is going to look beyond that. And he's going to look at the broken, sinful condition of the inner man. And he's going to have compassion on both his physical needs, but more importantly, meet the deeper need, the spiritual need. It doesn't appear that these individuals even spoke. That There's no recording of that. Jesus just sees their faith and speaks to the greatest need. And he says, son? Why does he use the word son? It's a term of endearment, but it's also one of superiority to one that has authority over another. So Jesus, once again, it, it's like if... If a young teenager goes to a new job and he's doing it wrong and needs some help, the manager, the one with the power and authority, says, son, I got this. I'll help you out. That's what Jesus is is, is saying. I am the authoritative one, and I want to help you out. Son, it's one of care and compassion. It's not one of just this this harsh correction. Your sins are forgiven. Why would he say this? Seems kind of odd, right? A little confusing for those in the audience. Why would he say your sins are forgiven? Like, uh, Jesus, I know you're smart and we've been hearing you, but don't you see, this, this man isn't here for some invisible healing. He's actually here for a visible, physical healing. And so I don't think they're lowering him down, this paralytic man, for his sins to be forgiven because he didn't come asking for some sort of sin spiritual problem. Well, even though he may not have been asking for that or no words are spoken, Jesus knows that is ultimately the deepest and greatest problem of this man not the condition of his legs. And so he's going to be speaking to this. But here's where we're going to see the critics. Because some are like, okay, this is going to get interesting. And the scribes, the religious leaders, the elite ones, they're cringing at these words that he said, your sins be forgiven. Look at verse 6. But the sum of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Immediately, (laughs) we see the heart's of the skeptics on display. Seemingly spiritual, 
and yet living in darkness. You see, as of now, they had not come to see the light of who Christ was and what he is actually offering to them. But Mark's going to give us this sneak peek. Look at verse 7. This is Jesus speaking to the scribes, or this is the, the scribes speaking within their hearts, so it's not audible. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Well, yes, they are very right. Who can forgive sins but God? What is Jesus subtly saying? God has arrived on the scene. I am the Son of God. I, I, am, I am deity. I am, yes, why am I saying this? Because I'm God, because I have the power and authority to say this. And right away, Jesus has just superseded the scribes' authority. Because even the scribes of this day would not have gone around saying, oh, grace and peace, your sins are forgiven. They, even in their authority, knew that that authority, that power, belonged to God and God alone. You can come to me and say, hey, will you forgive my sins, Pastor? No, I, I cannot. That is not for me. That is for God and God alone. Jesus is the intermediator between God the Father and man. And we're going to see this throughout our time together. But what starts is this amazing healing now threatens these scribes' power and authority. Whoa, what's going on here? And, and while they might have good theology, like, well, yeah, no one can forgive sins but God, which is correct, what they don't have is a good understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus is going to continue to reveal this little snippets at a time for those that would have eyes to see and ears to hear. He's going to be revealing his identity. He's going to be revealing his deity. This is a major shift. So here we have a man in a desperate situation come looking for a physical healing, but what he actually needs is a spiritual cleansing, forgiveness of skins. And then the, the, the doubting skeptics, they really have nothing to say to this man. This man has been around. They've never addressed his physical needs. They've never addressed his spiritual needs. But Jesus has something to say and do about both of those things. Look at verse 8. This is where we really start to see the divine Savior on full display. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? I mean, instantly Jesus knows what's going on within the head and hearts of these individuals. This is an amazing moment. Jesus not only speaks to the inner man of the sinful paralyzed man, but now he's directing his shift and focus on what is going on within the head and hearts of the scribes and their inner thoughts. And right, right away, they should already be wrestling with, uh-oh, how does this man know my thoughts? Because he's God, because he's omnipresent, because he's omniscient, he knows all things. You see, they, they ought to say, oh, this guy does have more authority. This guy does have more power. But they still continue to doubt some. You know, when it says some, I'm wondering, well, does that mean that some others had come to believe, had come to see as they may have been traveling with him, seeing this, this, and this? They're connecting the dots. It's very possible. But some are still doubting. Some are still skeptical. You see, Jesus wants the scribes to think Think about the inner questions within their heart, within their mind. He wants them to ask and answer what, 
what are these things within their mind? He wants them to see and know who Jesus is. And so look what it says there in verse 9. He's going to ask some more questions. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins be forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? You know, Jesus doesn't skip a beat. He's not thrown off by the distraction of the roof being torn off and this man being dropped down and he's not distracted by the thoughts and rumblings and grumblings of the scribes. He's going to use this as a tangible teaching moment, like a, a real good sermon illustra- illustration. That's what a good preacher teacher does. Like they, they take a real life event and then they can transfer it into some wonderful, amazing truth. And that's exactly what Christ does, and is going to do here. So which is easier? I mean, think about this within your own minds. To say your sins are forgiven or to get up, take up your bed and walk away. I mean, any of us can say your sins are forgiven. I mean, I can say that. You can say that. That doesn't actually make it true. And then I can say to you, take up your bed and walk. You're very unimpressed with me just saying your sins are forgiven, but that's super easy to do and... Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But when I say take up your bed and walk and the man remains in his state of unable to walk, then people know that I have no power or authority. But if I can do the the second and say pick up your bed and walk and that man actually does it, that shows, man, this guy actually has a little bit of power. This man actually has a little bit of authority. Well, if if it's easier to say one thing and then he does the harder thing, well, what, what, what does this mean? This means that Jesus, the Christ, has the greater power and authority to do both as he sees fit. He's wanting them to see the invisible, non-tangible, your sins are forgiven. He's wanting to, to, to recognize the power and authority by showing a visible, tangible power and authority that he does have. And so he's going to do this miracle One, so the scribes would be able to see and to know his power and authority, and really for all that are in attendance there. Um, Some of you may be familiar with the, uh, around Thanksgiving, there's this presidential turkey pardon. Maybe you're familiar with this. It makes the news every year. I don't know why. Um, But the president has great power and authority. In fact, one of their very last acts of office, because they don't want to do it when they're in office because of who will say this, that, or the other, but the president has great power, great authority, and one of their usually final acts on their last day, right before they, 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 they sign off as president, is they have these presidential pardons where they can look at criminals that have been connected with crimes and they think, you know what, I think that, that I, we should set him free, he should have no more punishment, and I pardon him. And there's this presidential pardon, and literally he can sign the piece of paper and this person is set free because he has the power and authority to do that. I could go up to any state prison, knock on the door, and I could say, hey, um, you know John and Jim and Steve and Larry, those four guys, I want them pardoned. And they'll probably say, like, under what power and authority? Well, I mean, I said so. I'm somebody, I'm an important person. You know what they'll say to me? Get off my lawn. That's what they'll say. Get on. You have no power, no authority to do that. Jesus is showing that he has this unique power and authority that no one else has. The power to restore, both physically and spiritually. 
this is big, this is huge, this is something that no one else has. And he's wanting to display this. Look at this, the first part of verse 10. Why does he do and say all these things? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus answers the why. He says, so that you would know your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus is looking to reveal who he is and what he offers. But, but he's the Son of Man with authority to forgive. He's the one with the ability to provide full restoration. Jesus is going to turn the tables on their thinking. He's going to challenge their thinking. It's easy to say one thing, but I'm going to actually prove it. And he's going to do just that. But why does he say the Son of Man? Maybe you've thought about this. Maybe you've inquired. Maybe you already know the answer. Son of Man, why does he use that title? It's kind of an ambiguous title. It's not threatening. It's not political. It's not military. I mean, he could have said the Son of God. That would have really raised the, the emotional level within the room. But he says son of man. What well, doesn't appear to be a special claim, son of man goes, I mean, we're all the son of man. We all go back to, to Adam and we're all human. That, that, so this is a common term, not threatening. And so when he says this, no one really thinks anything of it. But interestingly enough, Mark is going to use the term son of man 14 more times in the gospel of Mark. It does indicate his human side, but it's also mentioned 81 times in the entire New Testament. And we're not going to get too far into it today, but Jesus, once again, is subtly pointing us back and connecting dots of Old Testament prophecy pointing to him. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which we'll read later, we see that Daniel has this vision of a coming kingdom but what's described in this vision is the Son of Man coming. And so when Jesus describes himself here, notice in your Bible it says, the Son of Man. He's not talking Son of Men in general. He's talking third person, but he's talking of himself. The Son of Man and the Son of God has arrived on the scene, and he's standing in your very presence today. <laughs> I mean, and guess what? I'm about to do some real restitution. Something really amazing. Just, just hang tight. I haven't said it yet. I'm getting to it. But he's, he's dropping all these little hints and nuggets, revealing his identity, showing forth his uh, authority. Oh, it's amazing what is going on here. And so, as he seeks to display his divine ability, he's going to show forth his divine authority as the authoritative one, as the anointed one. He makes these claims, but then he's going to prove these claims. And so the ability to heal and forgive, oh, it's only because and through Jesus carrying that power and authority that no one else had. And so Jesus, being fully God and fully man, here's what we learn. He can not only relate to man humanly, emotionally, what's going on within them, he can see the cause and effects of sin, and, and he's impacted by the compassion of the people. And yet he, being fully God, is also not only able to resonate with them, he's also able to restore them. And he's going to do just that. Look at the second part of verse 10. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. 
I mean, that's amazing. He just like instructs him, hey, you who is laying on the ground in front of me, who just got dropped down from the roof, um, why don't you just go ahead and stand up? And uh, don't forget your mat, and uh, you can just head home. Just like that. Which one is harder? Well, to answer the question, none are hard for Jesus. <laughs> it's just as easy for him to heal the man as it is to forgive the man. Wow. Embrace your new freedom. Embrace your new life. You're free from the physical hindrances. You're free from the spiritual guilt. Just go on moving. Just go on moving in life. I have set you free of these things. You can now live in true freedom and forgiveness. What's in the past is in the past. You know, Jesus know, knew how that man was paralyzed. It doesn't indicate that he was paralyzed from birth. Maybe as he speaks to his sin, maybe this man became paralyzed because of caught up in some sinful act and some accident happens. And his being paralyzed was a result of some of his sinful actions. We don't know this. But here's what we do know. This man and Jesus are connected in this moment. He restores him fully of sin, spiritually and physically, and his sickness, and he's made whole. He is restored again. And this man's life will never be the same. He had this divine encounter with his divine Savior, but here's what we're going to see. This man, he was in this desperate situation, hopeless and helpless, and yet in Christ, he found both of those things. He found the hope and help that he needed that he could find nowhere else. What is this? This is a beautiful picture of God's grace to man. Man doing nothing, only this active faith pursuing Christ that, that, that God had given to these men and they go and they pursue this and this man is restored. It's a beautiful picture of grace. But let's look at the final verse here. There's this displayed solution. Verse 12 says, immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out from everyone. As a result, they were astonished and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Right away, the man did as Christ instructed, stood up, walked out, and everyone is just kind of standing there in shock and awe. We, we have never seen anything like this before. What's going on here? Real restoration, a real work of God. Well, I mean, what do we see here? This was based on faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the words of Christ alone, by grace alone, and ultimately, what do we see here? For the glory of God alone. Says all. All means all, super deep I know, but all stood in astonishment of what God did, and they glorified God in that moment. And so here's what we, we learn. Salvation, restoration. There's no money changing going on here. There's no man trying to work and earn for this salvation to earn the favor and grace and goodness and mercy of God. None of that. There's no religion here. There's no rituals here. There's none of that. They said, this salvation is of God. It's right there in the scriptures. And so Jesus answers what's harder? Nothing. Nothing is too hard for me. And all of the audience stand in awe. 
But what's interesting, it says they had never seen anything like this before. Isn't that interesting? Because I'm pretty sure in Mark chapter 1, Jesus was healing and performing all sorts of miracles. So what are they talking about? They'd never seen anything like this before. Maybe they never seen it, someone rip off the roof like that. That was an impressive roof, roof rip off and, and drop someone down. Maybe they've never seen that before. You think that's what they're talking about? I just Have they seen magicians or, or miracles before? Yeah, they, they actually had a, a few weeks prior at the same doorway right there. They saw him do miracles. What they had never seen before is before their very eyes, a man taken from being spiritually dead to being made spiritually alive, a man caught up and entangled in his trespasses and sins, being set free and finding forgiveness and freedom, they had never seen that before. You see, the men brought this individual there with a physical problem, thinking this was the greatest need, and in reality, Jesus looked right past that and said, there is actually a greater need that I want to meet and restore today, and it's the spiritual need. You see, why did this spiritual need so important? Because he realized sin separates you from God the Father. And there's only one way for man to be restored to God the Father, and that's through the forgiveness of his son, Jesus. So you, you do have a big problem with your legs, but you have a bigger problem with your entire life and eternity and where you will spend it. And I can resolve that problem. I am the one who offers forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is going to be speaking to here. And so many of the crowd are standing in awe and amazement. Why? Because they had never seen anyone like this. For there had never been anyone like this. For this Jesus is a different son of man. He is the son of man. Different from all others because he is also the son of God. And so today, as we conclude we may face some difficult situations. In Christ, our most difficult situation has been dealt with. This eternal condition, our spiritual condition. And yet that doesn't eliminate all of our problems. The problems still exist in which we face and live. But it really does help to put things in perspective, right? These smaller or lesser things, the greater thing has been dealt with. And so it should help us realign our thinking in the midst of problems and help us to think and contemplate Christ and point others to the person of Christ as well. So we just live out this act of faith, trusting in God despite the highs and lows of, of life. So when we find ourselves being robbed, when we find our cell phone is broken, when we find broken relationships, jobs not working out, and a series of other things, our health is diminishing, where we're just feeling like, oh, I need to be restored. And it would be great if God restores all of those things, and yet even if he doesn't, we can rejoice because the greatest need, this, this spiritual need, has been restored in Christ. If you know Christ, what a great and wonderful, beautiful thought. And we still live in a day where we can have doubting skeptics, right? You can have family and friends, maybe even yourself at times are a doubting skeptic, feeling discouraged in life. I've been there, you've been there, we can all be there from time to time. We can have mountaintop experiences where we're on fire, fully trusting God by faith, and then we can actually have times of doubts and discouragement down in the valley. Well, what do we do in the highs and lows? We continue to have this act of faith pursuing to know Christ and to follow him faithfully. 
That's what we need to do, even in the midst of all of these things. We can turn on the news and be bombarded by this, this, and this, and Lord, are you still on the throne? Are you still ruling? Are you still reigning? Because I don't know right now. You can still trust him. Actively, by faith, seek to follow him. You know, we serve a divine savior, the suffering servant king who displayed himself to be the anointed one, the son of God, but also the man of God who seeks to reconcile and restore man to God. This is really good news, and this is what he preached and what he proclaimed, and it's to what we are to cling to as the promise, but it's what we are to preach and proclaim to the world around us. Because the world, anyone apart from Christ, needs to be restored to Christ. Well, how are they restored to Christ without us proclaiming Christ? That's where you and I are to live on mission, to carry the baton of Christ to this world, who is still living in darkness, who is still having the doubts, who, who in the midst of difficult circumstances are trying to put the pieces back together by themselves and be restored. It's Christ who restores. Let's point them to that. And the scriptures highlight the displayed solution, and here's what we discover. It's not in possessions, it's not in position, it's in the person of Jesus and his power. That's the solution, and so we must be ambassadors of Christ through active faith in accordance with his word, by his grace and for his glory. That's what God's called us to. Easier said than done, but God has called us just to continue to turn to him, continue to follow him. The big idea this morning, I think we already have, have seen it, active faith in Christ leads to authentic forgiveness and freedom. And that same active faith that saves us and restores us is the same active faith that can sanctify us and restore us. So if it was good enough on our day of salvation, which it was and is, that same act of faith is good in our days of sanctification, in our days of struggle. He still longs to sustain us and give us what we need when we need it by his goodness, by his grace, and ultimately for his glory. We, need to, we just need to preach this to ourselves because sometimes when just life happens, we forget this. In, in, in the midst of our soul being drained, depleted, we need to run to God and allow him to restore us. And then, and only then, can we rejoice. You know, the biggest and greatest danger for Christians is to forget or diminish the power or relevance of the gospel. You guys see, this is not just some story. This is our Savior. And if this was good then, this is good now. And so let us rest in this and rejoice in this. Let's pray.